0: Well, we're going to continue our series today called You Asked for It. And even if you didn't ask for it, you asked for it. And so uh, here we are today. And the whole point of this series is to say, we're not afraid of your questions. You know, maybe you grew up in a church where you asked certain questions and you were shut down and told never to ask those kind of questions again. And uh, that's not my heart. My heart is, we want to look at Scripture, we want to take our questions and look at what Scripture has to say. And so, Part of my disclaimer I shared last week, and I will share it again this week, is is simply this. When we take on these questions you've submitted, what you have to know is I'm looking at what Scripture says either specifically to that issue or what principles of Scripture show us as we apply it to those principles. But this is my viewpoint of what Scripture says. And I pray and I use good resources, but understand this is my interpretation of what Scripture says concerning these matters. You might have a different opinion, and you're welcome to that. Um, But I have the platform today. So I'm going to share with you from my heart what I believe the Scripture says to these questions. And I don't do this alone. I I lean heavy toward the work of the Holy Spirit and Scripture, what the Bible says standing on itself, and, of course, uh, some great resources that help along the way. So last week we talked about end-of-life Questions and many of you submitted questions about end of life. And if you missed any part of the series, they'll all be available to you for free online. Just go to albanync.org and all of our messages are there. Um, and you can also interact with us through our uh, church app, Neighborhood Church app powered by Share Faith. If you just go to your store and search Neighborhood Church Share Faith, that app should come available to you to download. And our notes and our messages are also available to you uh, through that. Well, today we're going to take on a topic that maybe, in the church setting, gets avoided often, and, and that's because this is a very tense conversation, or it can be culturally tense conversation, but I believe, thank God, the Bible gives us some clarity on this particular issue we're going to talk about today. So today we're going to tackle questions that you've submitted. So this isn't stuff I'm trying to push an agenda. These are questions you've asked, and we're going to Scripture to look at. But all these questions are themed today around uh, sexual sin and gender issues. Um, And so maybe you thought, whoa, we're going to go there as a church? Yes, we're going to go there as a church. Because too many churches stay silent on this very big issue. And yet our culture has no problem throwing sexuality in your face. Um, and so we're going to go there. We're going to talk about it. Now, I'm glad our students are here. My, my, my hands off, our hands up to the students. Great to have you up there. I'm glad you're here because this is a topic I want you guys and gals to grab a hold of and really, and really put into your heart and wrestle with. So um, what we do in this system, and I'm just going to be honest with you today, we already, already preached this once. I only got through one question. And uh, so this is going to be a two-part on sexual sin and gender issues. Because there were, frankly, a lot of questions around this topic, which I'm glad there were questions. We want we to go to God's word for that. Um, so we're only going to get through one question today. So come back next week for part two, because I, 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 I feel terrible doing this, because I feel like we're only covering part of this. And when we talk about sexual sin and gender issues, I need you to hear me clearly. I believe God has called us to love people, okay? Okay? My heart in addressing this issues is to elevate the word of God in a loving and graceful way. Jesus came, John 1 said, full of grace and truth. Did he upset people in this day? Absolutely. But he did it with grace and truth. So when we talk about issues of sexual sin, I want you to hear my heart. This is how we all ought to be, and we'll talk more about it next week in part two of this series. But I want you to hear me. I'm not here to cast stones or judge anybody today, Okay. We've all got backstories. I get it. We all have family members that we love and care about that are dealing with some of these issues. I understand it. For you, this issue isn't an issue. It's a person with a name that you love deeply. I know that because I personally also have felt that. And so please hear my heart. I'm not fire and brimstorming today's message. This is the word of God. We're going to look at it as it addresses these questions. But I'm doing it with all the love in my heart for all people, okay? Now. First question that came up, and it's a great question, was this. Gay people say they are Christians and think they are saved, but the Bible says differently. If all sin is sin, then what makes being gay different than being a sinner? Now, just so you know, the questions that I post here are pretty much how they were submitted to me. There might have been some typos changed, but for the most part, this is the essence of the question. So it may not be politically correct, all right, I'm just, I don't, I don't want to edit somebody's question. That's what was submitted. But I do want to break this question down because this is a big question. And that's why I didn't get through, only, <laughs> I only got through one question today. Because this is really a big question that we need to look at very carefully. And so we look at this question, there's really two parts that I want to really tackle with this question today. And the first part is this, is it a sin to be a practicing gay? I want to take that question on and then we're going to tackle the question, can I be a gay Christian? So we're going to take those two right now. While we do this, understand that my conversation as we look at this is not leveled alone to one particular sexual sin. We're going to discover that as we lay this foundation, we're not targeting any one group. This is an issue that we all need to understand because it's bigger than just one particular sexual sin expression. Okay, You with me? So to really answer this question, we need to revisit what God established as the appropriate context in which two individuals experience sexual activity, all right? Now, I do want to give another disclaimer real quickly. We are going to be talking about sexuality. I'll try to keep it as PG as I can, Uh, but if you have young ears in the room, you may want to use your discretion on when it's time to step out, and I won't be offended. Um, But we are going to We're going to get into this conversation about sexuality and sexual sin. So if that's a word in in terms you're not comfortable with your kids going down, I understand. Please use your discretion. So how do we establish what a principal foundation is upon which to answer this question? Well, we believe in the church, the Bible is our authority, and we look to what Scripture says. And Scripture has not been silent on the issue of what God's appropriate context for sexuality is. Okay? So to establish that, I want to go back to the Bible, and we'll go back to actually to Genesis chapter 1. Because in Genesis, of course, it means the beginnings, we see the beginning of all that God created, and within those beginnings, we see the creation of Adam and Eve. Okay? So what I want to do is I want us to go back and begin to build the foundation on how we address what God's design was for sexuality, all right? Genesis 1.27 So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. We go to Genesis chapter 2. So what we see here is, initially in chapter 1, is God's specified design for gender orientation. One man, one woman. Okay, that's what we began with in the beginning, all right? Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said it's not good for the man to be alone. So as we know that the progression of creation, man was created first and he was alone, okay? So it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable to him. That is a key word to look at, a suitable helper for the man. It goes on in Genesis 2, goes to verse 20, and it says this. So the man, he he was given a task, by the way, let me go preface, to name all the creatures around him. So he's naming, he's looking at creatures, he's naming them. That'd be a fun job. I would love that job. It says, so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found in the animal kingdom. Men, aren't you glad for that? All right. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. Now, I want you to understand, what we're seeing God do now is design, okay? No suitable helper was found for the man, but it's not good for this man to be alone. So God begins the next phase of his design for sexuality in the context he's establishing. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, whoa! That's in the message translation. This one says, no, this one says, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Now listen to a summary thought. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So, in Genesis, the beginning of all things, we see God's design for sexual activity. So, let's break it down. What we discover in this context, and scripture now will verify that, Jesus will confirm that, Paul will confirm that, and it's this that God created marriage to be a covenant relationship between one person created male and one person created female. All right? So, there were biological counterparts that became the suitable helper that Adam needed and, of course, the suitable helper that Eve would need. Okay, So that is his design for marital relation. Now, let's take it to the next step, because some people say, well, what about you know, sexuality? Where are you going with this? So sex is only to be experienced within the context of this biblical covenant relationship of marriage between one male and one female. So we see in Genesis the design for marriage, and we see it becomes the context for sexual activity. Now, the reason we want to establish that point first is this is not targeted to any one specific issue, is it? It is God's design. And when we look at God's design, it creates for us a framework from which we look at other issues and run it through this filter. We'll talk about that here in a, bit moment, in a moment later. But if there were exceptions allowed by God, they would be specifically addressed in Scripture. But there are no exceptions made by God. So anything that happens outside of that design is outside of the will of God. So Jesus then affirms that marriage definition and God's design when he comes. Now, remember who Jesus is. He's God in the flesh, right? He was with God at the creation of all the world and with Adam and Eve. He was there when it was happening. And he comes in ministry, and what he does is he affirms the design that took place thousands of years earlier. Let's look at what he said, Matthew 19.4. And he's talking about the, the, the context of this passage. is He's, he's addressing divorce. Right? That's really what he's being asked about. But in that context of divorce, he says this, haven't you read that the beginning, so this isn't like new, this isn't a new piece of information I'm coming to to bring further light to, at the beginning, this is the way God established it from the very beginning, that the creator made them male and female, so what Jesus does is affirms the, the maleness and the femaleness of the marital relationship, okay? male and female, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What is Jesus doing? He's taking the Scriptures and affirming that, what was said in Genesis. Therefore, what God... Sorry, so they will become no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. In other words, what God has designed, let no one pick apart. The design of marriage, and then so now you can kind of see why he was bending toward divorce. That's why he was addressing, let no one take it apart. But I think there's a grander principle here as well. This is the design that God had, and we need to be careful when we start playing with it. Rather than looking for loopholes, we need to look at what's been established since time began as God's design for the context of sexual activity. Now, Paul also affirms God's design for marriage between one man and one woman in the letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians 5, 31 to 33, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. And so he just picks up what's already been affirmed by Jesus and reconfirms the biblical design for the covenant of marriage in which sexual activities happen. And now what Paul does for us is explains the next step, which is okay, we've established what marriage is. Now, where does sexuality fall? So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, just to kind of give this a, a, a setup so you understand what's going on. Paul is doing in this Corinthian letter what we're basically doing right now. The church had questions about faith and life. And so they, they wrote those questions down, sent them in letter form by a carrier to Paul. And so Paul's writing back in response to their questions. And one of the questions basically was a statement that it was wrong to have sex. Okay? There was an issue in the church where there was a group of people who believed that sexual activity of any sort was wrong. So let me explain why, what was going on here. Okay? What we had were kind of two parties in the church. One, and this is two extremes, there were people in the middle obviously, but here's the two extremes of what was happening. You had one group of people who believed that because of the grace of Jesus, that what the flesh did doesn't matter. And so they believed in a very liberal way of living life, physically, sexually, whatever, because the flesh didn't matter. What mattered was the soul, okay? So they would give themselves to whatever activity, because it didn't really matter what the flesh did. There was this kind of separation between the soul and their flesh. Where Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all that you are, okay? So they kind of compartmentalized life and said, well, I love you, God, but I'm gonna live however I want to, right? Because there's this thing called grace. So that was one liberal extreme. Then on the other end, you had people who believed that because of the sacredness of who they were in God, um, it was dirty even to have just normally allowed sexual behavior. So they said, no more sex. So if this was a church that said to you, gentlemen, even in, within marriage, women, no more sex. Next week, we would have a lot smaller church, right? But there was a, there was a group of people who that's what they, what they upheld. So you had these two polar opposites. So Paul's addressing that question, and this is what he says. Now for the matters you wrote about. So he's addressing the question, and he quotes them. So what you see here are quotes. He's just restating back what was stated to him, okay, in the letter. And the statement was, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That was the point they were making. Because of the sacredness of the soul, the flesh is now bad. Anything you do to please the flesh is bad, okay? That's what they're saying to Paul. So Paul gives clarity. He says, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. What Paul is doing is creating a context in which sexual expression, sexuality, is allowed, We know it's marriage. Now he's saying this is where sex needs to be focused toward. I like the way the message translation takes it because it kind of removes some of the gray on on the the, the way things are phrased. Look at what it's stated here. It says, is is it a good thing to have sexual relations is what verse 1 says. And this isn't going to be on, is it on the screen? Good. Certainly, but only within a certain context It is good for a man to have a wife and for a woman to have a husband. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. All of a sudden, that verse just brings some clarity. Marriage is honored, and the location, the context of sexuality is clarified. It's within marriage. Now, the writer of Hebrews, who we don't know it is, it could be Paul, it could be somebody else, but the writer of Hebrews says it this way, because he honors marriage. Marriage should be honored by all, is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Now, what is, that, what is his definition of marriage? His definition of marriage is what has been established as God's design from the very beginning, okay? So it should be honored by all, and the marriage bed, that is the context in which sexuality happens, be kept pure. We'll talk more about that in a moment. For God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. So, let's summarize. Sex is only acceptable before God. I know culture has a different message. They push in every media form they can. But listen to this. This is biblical. And you can't really get around this because the Bible is pretty transparently clear, Old and New Testament in this this topic. Sex is only acceptable before God within the context of a covenant marriage relationship between one male and one female. Now, why is this an important thing to establish? Because this becomes, like I said, the filter through which we look at any sexual expression. Okay, So what we're doing here is we're upholding what the Bible has, de- has designed and shown us for marriage and sexuality. What it basically says is there's marriage, and inside of marriage, there comes the act of sex. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes... All right, you guys, you guys learned that at a young age, right? Now, if you're married, good news. In that context, sex is a gift to be enjoyed. If you're outside of marriage or outside of the biblical definition of the appropriate context of sexuality, you're in dangerous territory, okay? So what we do is we have this filter now, and then what we can do is we can look at any sexual sin through this filter and say, is this within the will of God or outside the will of God? So if the filter is a covenant marriage relationship between one male and one female, and we hold that over... um, Let's just say homosexuality, a practicing homosexual who is having sex with a person of the same sex, you hold this filter over that, you would say, this is biblically wrong. It is not within the will of God. Is it culturally acceptable? That's a different question, friends. Okay, We're talking about biblical uh, filters here. You hold that over extramarital affair. Does that fit one man, one woman in a covenant relationship if somebody is having sex outside of marriage? No, that doesn't. That is not biblical sex. That is worldly sex. You hold that over pedophilia. Totally wrong. That is not one male, one female. Okay. Well, generally they are gender, but not one adult woman, one adult male. Right. So that's wrong. How about uh, bestiality? That, for those you don't know what that means, don't look it up because you'll get you'll get searches you don't want to find. But <laughs> it's wrong. You hold it over uh, two married couples consenting to swap their spouses. Wrong. You hold it over orgies. Wrong. Anything outside of one male, one female in a marriage relationship, then sexuality of that kind of expressions is off limits. Okay? We move it from a physical perspective to a heart perspective, pornography. Wrong. Okay? So you get the point? This becomes a filter. And the reason this filter is important is because it's not one arrow pointing at one group of people saying that's wrong. Because what happens here is what we're going to see in a moment when it comes to, yes, the Bible does address homosexuality, but it addresses it with a whole slew of sexual sins, all of which are outside of God's design. And so we want to establish this. But God does address homosexuality, and the Bible is clear on those matters, so I want to bring it to your attention. Leviticus 20.13 This is Old Testament. Leviticus was that book that was basically about how are we going to live together in community before a holy God, and Leviticus deals with that. Some very practical matters, one of which is this. If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. We move forward to the New Testament because it's not just an Old Testament thing. All right, because some folks will say, yeah, well, that's just legalism. That's the old law. We don't live according to the law, but by grace, so that goes away. Uh, Paul brings it up, and Paul is living out. Remember, this is a guy who loved the law, right? And now he's living in relationship with Christ, and this is what he says about the reality of the, of the heart when it comes to sexual sin or any other depravity. Look at what he says, Romans 124. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised, amen. And because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women, And were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. By the way, that is not AIDS. Okay, that is what people say, well, that passage is talking about AIDS. Um, There's, you can, that is certainly a consequence of this kind of activity, but this is not what they're receiving the penalty of. The penalty is that heart that is calloused toward God, that does not see the brokenness in which they're in and which will ultimately lead them to a life eternally separated from God. Okay? Moving on. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they, could no, so they no longer so that they do what ought not be done. This depraved mind is a very important topic to understand about dealing with people who are in um, sexual sin and brokenness, because oftentimes they don't see it that way, okay? Why? Because they, they have been given over to that mind. That's why it's hard to have conversations with people who don't, that this that not even on their radar right now, okay? So we'll talk about how we deal with that next week, so come back for that. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Now, this is where Paul makes it clear this issue is bigger than one specific group of society, okay? 1 Timothy 1, 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, for the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers. For the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that confirms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which He entrusted to me. Now, what I want you to notice in this passage is that homosexuality is not an isolated issue, is it? He talks about sin. He talks about all sin is sin. The law was given to reveal sin. That's all the law could do. It couldn't fix sin. It just revealed what it was. And so the sin is sin. If it's lying, perjury, murder, sexual immorality, homosexuality, he's leveling the field and saying sin is sin. So lest we make today's topic about just one segment of society, we've got to back up and recognize we've all violated God. Maybe not in this particular issue, but we've all violated God and God's design for our lives. But what I want you to notice, though, is that he does lay homosexuality right next to sexual immorality. And the reason is because there is an issue here in sexual immorality as well, like we've already talked about. You take that filter, you put it over any other relationship, you're recognizing that it is sin. So, my point of establishing all of this is that I believe as Christians, what we need to do is focus primarily on making the case for biblical sexuality. Not that we're against other kinds of sexual expression. Because if you lead with it, I'm against you, what is that going to achieve for you? Right? So instead, we establish a biblical example and definition of what. Sexuality is meant to be expressed in Because everybody has experienced the consequences, well not everybody, but a lot of people have experienced the consequences of sexual expression outside of that biblical definition. Premarital sex, affairs, same-sex attraction, same-sex acting on that attraction. you know, it's there. It's, it's, it's very prevalent in our society, within the church friends and without. So I think it's important, what we should be about is establishing what the Bible says about it, not necessarily saying, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. That doesn't do anything. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw men to me. Okay? So I think we should be more for establishing what the Bible says than what it's beating people up with. Does that make sense? All right. So next question that kind of comes with this big question, and then I'm going to be done. Can a gay person be a Christian? This is a a really big question that I've heard some great controversy over, so I want to be very clear. So make sure you wake up and pay attention to the whole answer because I hate being lifted out of context and it being used against me. So just listen with big ears all the way through the whole conversation here because I don't want you to miss this, all right? Can a gay person be a Christian? So here's the question. How does any sinner become a Christian? Let's just kind of, you know, again, let's not put a label on the sinner, because sin is sin. Everybody has a backstory with sin, all of us. The Bible says, for all have sinned. Okay, that, that means me, you, everybody in the room. May not be the same way, but we've all sinned. So let's not put handles on this. Just hear me right now for, for, for a moment, Okay. How does any sinner become a Christian? I'll tell you how. What they do is they believe in Christ Jesus as God's son and the solution to our sin problem that God gave us. Okay? That means they have to own their sin. That means they have to recognize I need a savior. Now, some people in brokenness aren't there yet, are they? You got family members you're praying for, but they don't see it as you see it. They're like, I don't got a problem. You got a problem with me, but I don't have a problem. So, If they can't see it, it can't be addressed. So salvation is only for those who believe who Jesus was and why he came, which was to deal with my sin problem. And so until I own it and see it as sin, I can't move any further, can I? And that's where we begin to find the big divide in the areas of sexual sin, as I don't see it as a problem well, then you're not seeing it as a sin, and therefore you can't really make those next steps, okay? So they got to start there. And that's why you can argue until you're blue in the face with somebody who is living contrary to Scripture, but if they aren't owning their own, you can't go anywhere. What do you do? Come back next week. We'll talk about it. All right. So after they, they see their own sin, what do they do? They need to confess it. Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So we confess it. And after confession, what's the next natural step? Repentance. Recognizing, okay, what I was doing was wrong, and I'm not going to go back that way anymore. Instead, of now I'm going to turn my life and focus it toward Jesus, and that's repentance. And so confessing, yes, it was wrong, but I'm not going to keep going back and doing it over and over and over and over and over again. And we'll talk about the process of our faith here in a moment, but reality is I've repented That was wrong. I'm not going to follow that path any longer. I'm going to set my feet by the help of the Holy Spirit toward the Lord. So there's repentance involved, which means not continually, willingly, once again, daily, every day, yielding to that lustful flesh again. So, using that process of conversion for any sinner... I believe a person who identifies currently as I have same sex attraction, I'm gay, I believe they can be a Christian. But now let's talk about what that's gonna look like through that filter, okay? That means they have to identify that that practicing homosexuality is outside of God's design for me. So I can't go back that way. I'm gonna have temptations, but I can't go back that way. So they can be saved. They may still have same-sex attraction feelings, but they got to bring those before Jesus and say, God, I need help. Help me to focus my attention toward you. Okay. So if they confess of their sin, they recognize the brokenness of that sin, God honors that, and they can be saved. Just like, aren't you glad he listened to you? Maybe your sin wasn't sexual sin, but aren't you glad he listened to you and said, you're forgiven? Now, I want to give you a verse that backs it up, all right? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Listen to what Paul says. He's writing to the church at Corinth, which is a mixed bag of all kinds of sexuality in, in Corinth culture. I mean, it was practiced in open worship among the pagan gods. They used sexuality as an expression of worship. I mean, it was everywhere. And this is what he says. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And if you stopped there, you'd say, see, Kelly, I just proved you wrong. They can't be a Christian. Aren't you glad the Bible goes to the next verse? Christians, let me just tell you something. You need to learn how to move to the next verse on these topics. Let me show you the next verse. And that is what some of you were. Did you hear what he just said? Some of you in the church in Corinth who love Jesus and fallen, you were a homosexual. You were practicing that sex. You were an, an immoral person. You were a swindler. You were all these, you know, you were. What does that were mean? Anybody in the English remember that? what that word means? That means you used to was right? You were. But he goes on. And I love, this is is great. But you were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What does that tell me? We all have a once you were, don't we? But you were justified. You were washed. By the blood of Christ, you're redeemed. What does that mean? That means I believe, according to the scripture, a person who recognizes that within them, the feelings they have towards same-sex attraction is not biblical. It's outside the will of God for them. They have, and they can come to faith, and in that moment, now there's a, there's a crisis of belief for them now. Because it's like, well, what do I do with these feelings? Now, let me just tell you right now, Issues of same-sex attraction are not simplistic, okay? I mean, if you just write it off as, it's bad, knock it off. Can I just tell you, it's not that simple, friends. This is a very complex issue. When I've been reading psychology, Christian psychologists work on this issue, it is complex. There's not just one size fits all when it comes to this issue of why people feel same-sex attraction to somebody else. Because there are people who have unwanted feelings toward that. Now, sometimes it's, it's in their genes in some capacity. There's a, it's just there. And so some literally do come from the womb with a natural bent. Others have sexual experience that moves them and encourages them in a certain direction. Others, it's just absolute uh, perversion, and they just don't care because my body is, is physical and I should enjoy it to its fullest extent, and they don't care. Okay? So you can't just say, it's simple, fix it. This is complex. But here's what I know about Jesus. He takes complex things and he can simplify it. That's what he does. Now, let me give you an example back on this this issue. What we hear today, especially in this area of sexuality, is the word identity, don't we? That's like a buzzword right now. I identify as. Therefore, I can use the girls' bathroom as a male. Or I identify as. And so we talk about identity. Now, let me just tell you something. What Paul touches on here is critical. Hear me. He touches on identity, doesn't he? What well, does he say? All these things you were. That means that's past tense. You was those things. You're not now. You have a new identity. What's he say in 1 Corinthians 5.17? I don't have the verse on the screen for you, but he says this If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Here's what I believe that when I come to Christ Jesus, I have a new identity. And that identity, praise God, is not built upon my gender. If it was, then either guys, we're toast for eternity, or women, you're toast, right? I'm glad my identity is not based on anything physical about, now, I'm a man, unashamedly, I'm a man. But my identity today is not built on, well, I'm a man, because men do stupid stuff, all right? So I don't build my identity on the fact that I'm just a man. I build my identity on the fact that I'm a Christ follower. And that changes everything. That changes how I view situations that come in life. I'm not filtering those based on what my sensual lust tells me. Well, I'm, I'm a mern, you know? So I'm going to do whatever feels good. No. I'm a follower of Christ. My identity is in Him. Ephesians talks about that repeatedly, So here's the point. A person who currently identifies as gay and is acting in that behavior can experience true conversion and can come out the other side identified as a follower of Christ, but they will have to make some very unique adjustments in life. Some, and I've heard case study after case study of some people who through the power of Christ, the Holy Spirit, and and great uh, Christian ministries have come along, People who have had same-sex attractions and began to explore that and found healing in Christ Jesus and have entered a heterosexual relationship very satisfactorily. Others have stayed single the remainder of their life and have continued to wrestle with the temptation but brought that before Christ and asked, just like all of us do, right? Ask for strength and forgiveness where needed and keep moving forward in Christ Jesus. So long story short, yes, yes. I believe today we have active Christians who are gay. They're not practicing, but they are yielding their, like we all do, their passions and desires to Christ and saying, "Help me to be holy." Now, the challenge with this is how the church views this point, because we're just one expression of the faith community, and there are others that ordain homosexual practicing gay ministers. And and that's, that's next week's conversation, so come back next week. But you've heard my viewpoint on this issue. But let's not make this slanted toward one organization or one group or one people. This issue of sin, we look at biblical marriage and sexual sin, I think all of us recognize it's a big issue. So what do we do? Well, besides coming back next week to pick up part two, let me tell you what we should do. And I'll bring this up again next week. Go to the last slide for me, if you wouldn't mind, please, Bill. Here's my viewpoint on these hot topic issues, especially publicly. It's time for the church to focus more on evangelizing and less on politicizing. Now, we'll talk about that again next week. But this is the problem, friends. I believe we have the best news ever. God loves you. God loves the homosexual. God loves the heterosexual. God loves the broken, I don't know who I am person. He loves them. And He has a plan for their life. He has a, a process of salvation they can enter. But let me tell you when we politicize these issues, what does it do? It creates a dividing wall, it's an us against them mentality. Was that what the evangelism was about that Jesus came to do and us against them? You know what what Jesus did? He walked right into the middle of sexual messes, and we're going to look at some next week. He walked right into the middle of them, and he held out truth, and he held out hope. And you know what happened? They were attracted to it. So friends, the question is, what are we called to do? We're going to talk, like I said, we're going to explore it more next week. But here's one thing. Please hear this very carefully because I know some of you are very politically involved. I'm not saying don't vote. Be American. Do your rights as an American. Vote with your heart biblically on issues that come up. But some people on social spaces, you're you're mean. I'm not talking about anybody in particular. I'm just saying the church can come across very mean. Now, does that mean we condone everything? That's not my point. If Jesus is lifted up, he will draw men to him. He's faithful to do that. I'm not the Holy Spirit, neither are you. But if I lift up truth in Jesus, then people have to kind of deal with that. And if, they want to, if it's not their cup of tea and they want to turn their nose against it, we pray for them. We continue to pray for them. But what if you took your politically bent posts and retweets and shares, and what if instead you posted something wholesome? I mean, some of you do it because you like tension. You like controversy. I don't think Jesus called us to be controversial. Now, he came. You know he was most controversial with? Religious people. I'm just saying. The sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes loved Jesus. What if we began to post things that were wholesome, truth-bearing? You know, it's interesting. I... I'm on social media, and I, I just occasionally will post a verse in picture form that's wholesome and up. It's not judgmental. It's not like lifting Scripture and saying God hates something. Because I hate it when people do that, so I'll knock it off if that's you. But it was just the truth. And you know what? I was surprised by the people that liked it. Because I know where they're at in their walk right now. But they liked it. Why? The gospel is beautiful to people who are fallen. They don't think they deserve it. But it's time to lift it up and quit politicizing everything. Because Jesus is the answer, not politics, to these issues. Now, our culture is gonna do, is gonna to continue to do what it's gonna do, and I'm way past my time and I'm done. But I don't make my decisions morally based on cultural norms. But Scripture is my guide. And as followers of Jesus, you got the same mandate. The scripture becomes our authoritative book of our way we deal with things. So what do we do with this? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes because I know you got names behind these things we've talked about. You've got people you love. And Jesus loves them. God's love is unconditional. It grieves the heart of God that people of any kind would turn away from him through their willful act of sin, but God loves them. That's that's what brings people to repentance. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance, the Bible says. So God, thank you that you love the person we're thinking about or the people group we're thinking about. And because of that love, that puts us in a very unique place as Christians to be willing at times to walk into the mess and hold up truth. And not everybody's going to embrace it. Not everybody embraced what you came to say, Jesus. But you did it with grace and truth and so perfectly. So guys, we think about this, the, the point isn't to fuel us up to have ammunition now to go and blast people who are living in these kinds of ways. That's not the point. The points to look at your word and what it says about sexual sin of any variety and to know that you have a plan for us and outside of that plan there is trouble. So God, help us to move forward now with grace and truth in these areas and to come back next week to gain further assistance and, and biblical direction on how we interact then with our family member who identifies as gay. Or whatever segment of society we can think of today that, that's living contrary to your biblical mandate for sexuality, how do we do that? You've given us principles in the Word, and we're gonna look at those. So help us, Lord. Help us, because you love this world so much. You've called us not to politicize, but to make disciples, one at a time. So Help us do that, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.